thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Hello, Reedy. Lovely to chat to you. Okay, uh, what's the latest on Ebola? Are we moving forward, Chris? Well, the numbers are still rising. Mm. They're still seeing increasing numbers of infections, so they haven't broken the back of this yet. We've got more than 5,500 people declared to have died by the WHO. The difference is the international organisations have got quite a good response together now. We were actually covering this on the Naked Scientist podcast this this week. If you go to nakedscientist.com, you'll see a picture of people wearing protective equipment on the front page. That is a programme we have just made there's about 40 minutes of on-the-ground coverage and oh. input from experts on where we are. We talked to UNICEF, who are, in fact, the guy who's leading UNICEF's uh, efforts in Sierra Leone. We also speak to someone from my own laboratory who volunteered to go and help to set up and run one of the UK-funded and led diagnostic and treatment centres, and she's in uh, Kerrytown, which is also in Sierra Leone. So the, the bottom line is that there's a coordinated response going on. It's a good response, but it's taking a little while for things to gather momentum partly because you're dealing with countries which are really really poor people you know living in south africa take for granted the fact you jump in your car and drive down a well-made road Mm. to get to most parts of the country in these places there are very poor roads there are very big distances involved very isolated communities very poor communications and there's a lot of distrust of authority a lot of people are very skeptical and scared and people don't tend to be taking on board the public health message about how you stop this thing and put all those things together and you've yes. got this toxic cocktail that's causing it to spread unfortunately really yeah and the world um but, but just in terms of the response i mean this is not a west a west african uh, problem there've been concerns that uh, there's not enough um a response but but there has been research i know that uh, canada uh, was also one of the countries trying uh, a vaccine the united states when you assess the response the global response uh, uh, to ebola is there satisfactory coordination Well, it's interesting because Peter Walsh, who is one of the researchers we had on the programme that we've just made, was making the point that there are some of these international organisations that work very well together. They're good bedfellows, if you like. Mm. But many of them aren't. They just don't talk to each other. And the kind of reaction we need and the kind of response to the current problem, but also making sure there isn't another one, either of this or another pathogen, another disease... That needs these groups to talk to each other and work together, and that currently is not the case. Mm. And one of the big sort of fall-downs or one of the big stumbling blocks is 
the fact that they don't work together so well, these international organisations. So I think there's going to be a lot of emphasis and pressure brought to bear by scientists and politicians to try and get a more coordinated response in future. Mm -hmm. The fact is, there are more and more people on the earth, there are more and more and more people in West Africa especially, the population where this is happening yes. has in the last 20 years or so gone up by 300, 400%. So huge increases in, in numbers of people, big increases in population density. The people are more mobile and more connected despite the fact that the country as a whole is fairly poorly connected. The, bo the borders are not well controlled, infection control and that sort of thing is poorly implemented and it's, it really is uh, an, an opportunity waiting to happen for some kind of infectious outbreak and it's really just now that Ebola's happened to exploit the situation but next year we could be seeing a different problem. There is another important issue here which the gentleman Yaron Warman from UNICEF was at pains to emphasise to us which is that even though Ebola is causing a big problem in these countries, yes, five and a half thousand people uh, currently have died, there are other diseases which continue to be a major, major problem in these places. Malaria causes hundreds of millions of cases and quite a large number, maybe 750,000 million people to die every year, 70% of them children. Just because Ebola is currently on the street, it doesn't mean that those other problems have gone away. The difference is that Ebola is robbing the fairly fragile health resources these countries did have of their resource to treat things like malaria and also to give women somewhere to have a baby. So there's this huge knock-on health mm. impact, which is not Ebola, but it's because of Ebola. And that's what we've got to worry about, because even when we break the back of Ebola and it goes away, which, which hopefully it will, within you know, the next six months or so, we'll get it cleaned up, there's going to be this long-term health impact because the healthcare system has been further decimated. Hmm. Let's uh, get to your questions then. Our lines are open 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three zero seven zero two. Keith Fern has sent a tweet asking, which human sense was strongest in our earliest times? Were our eyes weaker and hearing and smells stronger? Hello, Kath. Brilliant question. You can get some clues to this by looking at evolution because we have evolved from simpler animals what do simpler animals do? Well, let's look at a bacterium first and foremost. They're the simplest, smallest cells on Earth. And bacteria are very, very sensitive to chemicals in their environment. They can smell, if you like. Around the surface of, or coat of a bacterium, there are what we call receptors. These are molecular docking stations that respond to or bind onto chemicals in the environment and those chemicals can stimulate or control the behaviour, growth and movement of the bacterium itself. And so you could argue that our most primitive sense is one of detecting chemicals in the environment, therefore that's smell, and so smell is probably one of the earlier senses. If you also look at how much of our nervous system is devoted to processing a sense... In humans, about a third of our brain is, is devoted to processing what we're looking at. We're very heavily dominated by our visual sense. Other animals, on the other hand, look at a dog. A third of a dog's brain is dominated by its ability to smell. Its nose is connected straight into, and the same in us, but a third of its brain is devoted to smelling things. So it depends what animal you're talking about, but I would say that smell is probably one of the earliest and one of the most developed in some animals' mm. senses that we would have relied on more in the past and probably a bit less today because in us, vision has become our dominant sense. Johnny in Yesteras, hi. Hi, uh, really. How's it, Chris? Uh, Hi, with the advent of comma 67P, uh, it, hel it may help us to uh, 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 assist us in, in, in uh, knowing the birth or, or knowing about the birth of the universe. 
On the adverse, is it possible that the comments can tell us about the future? Say if Neptune and Pluto crash into each other and uh, they really release gamma rays that will only reach us in the year two, 3000. Is it possible that something like this, that they can tell us about the future as well? Hi, Johnny. In some respects, comets do tell us about the future because they tell us the history of our solar system so far, mm. where we came from, and if we know where we came from, we have a better insight into where we might be going. It's very unlikely that we're going to see Pluto and Neptune colliding any time soon because they've had more than 4.6 billion years to do that, and they haven't done that yet. So we're pretty comfortable that the planets we have are in relatively stable configurations now. But what those planets do do is when they line up in certain gravitational configurations, in other words, if you imagine these balls whizzing around in space in a big circle around the sun, periodically, because there are eight of them, then you will get different alignments of those planetary bodies and therefore the gravity that they're affecting sp or they're, they're deploying at space will mean that periodically you get a tug in a certain direction more than an another on other objects in the solar system. And this is what dislodges comets and other materials and potential impactors, actually, into the inner solar system. And they become, um, instead of being way out in deep space, they become objects that visit the inner solar system periodically, like this comet has. So in some respects, looking at how these comets are influenced by planets and looking at their trajectory might tell us a bit about the future, because if we, for instance, detect one that ends up on an Earth-bound course, we know what the orbit's doing, we know how it's moving. We might be able to say, well, in X number of years' time, that might come quite close to Earth. But that's pretty unlikely, because, as I say, we've had quite a number of billions of years that the solar system's been here, and it hasn't happened yet. But people are still watching space. There are lots and lots of these objects that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. um, Ralph, please stay on the line for us. We're going to take your calls in just a moment. And, Gerard, you've got a question about uh, Ebola as well, coming to you in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Ralph in Somerset West. Hi there, Ralph. Hi, guys. Mm. My daughter is... She's, she's only nine years old. Oh, your line is just so bad. I'm sorry about that. I'm putting you back on hold, Ralph. I think you had a question about your daughter who has ADHD, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Gerard in Durbanville, hi. Good morning, really. Mm. Good morning, Chris. I'm honest to speak with you, sir. Um, the question is, the people that are now dying of Ebola, uh, we see on a little bit on television, there's not much going on in South Africa, but uh, we see them bury them in bags I would like to know what, how long is the virus then going to live and what is the effects going to be on the soil? I'll listen on the radio. Thank okay. you. Okay, uh, the effects on the soil. Hmm. Hello, Gerard. And you raise a really important point because one yes. of the reasons why we're seeing these explosive outbreaks is in fact funeral processes and funeral rites and rituals in these countries. There are instances where very large numbers of people are gathering at the site of a funeral for an individual who's died, which is what we all want to do, but then various other practices, like when people are preparing bodies for burial, they're washing down the body and then drinking the water they've washed the body with, which is highly infectious, which is why we're seeing these outbreaks. That's one of the areas where these governmental and non-governmental organisations have intervened to try to break the infectious cycle. The best strategy is prompt isolation of the casualty, put them into something which means they can't infect other people as they're transported to where they're going to be buried. Burying a person is, is one strategy, cremating them is another, other 
parts of these countries, they're actually using cremation as a very good way to make sure that there's nothing infectious left behind. If you bury people, though, this is regarded as safe as long as someone doesn't come along and disturb the grave for uh, within a reasonable period of time. I mean, we're talking months to years. Then there'll be nothing left at all. The virus Ebola is relatively fragile, actually. It's what we call an RNA virus. It's not a tough particle. And within a, a little while, I mean, if you put Ebola on a surface, within 24 hours, it's largely getting to the point where there's not much Ebola left after 24 hours. So in a body, which is breaking down because there's microorganisms beginning to break the body down and turn it into a sort of soup in the soil, there won't be much left that's viable Ebola after, after I think, probably weeks. So it's probably the safest strategy is to promptly isolate casualties and either cremate them or bury them that's a, that's a good strategy because then unless people come along and disturb the grave site then there's a, a, a much 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 reduced risk that someone's going to come into contact with infectious material tina in pretoria hi hi really hi chris um i've got a question about anthropology um if you look at the <clears throat> animal kingdom um you will obviously see that the males are usually the ones that are very colorful and the females are the ones that tend to be more gray and, and brown. Um, with regards to humans, um, if you look back even at the Baroque times where men would wear wigs and would have full makeup on, um, if you compare that to nowadays, um, females are the ones that are expected to wear makeup, decorate themselves. Um, was there a specific period where this all changed? Why is it that females nowadays are expected um, to be the more colourful ones and the males not? Uh, hello, Tina. What an amazing question and a good observation, too. Yes. I hadn't really thought about that. But this, this example of sort of sexual dimorphism, how creatures look different and have evolved to be different shapes, is slightly different from your point that also there's an additional factor here, which is self-decoration. And you're right, there are lots of species where the males go to extraordinary lengths to, to lure and woo the females, whereas in humans... Hum we, we would say that, or w women would say that some women go to extraordinary lengths to, to try to impress the men, and there's also an expectation societally that that should happen. Exactly why it came out that way, difficult for me to answer. I mm. think probably there are lots of people who've got some suggestions. So I'll tell you what I'll do, rather than just speculate, let, let me take a look at this, because I think it's a really important question. There are a number of factors here. One is what someone looks like and how big they are and that kind of thing, because that also influences a, a person's mate choice. And so m men know what they're looking for in a woman's assets, <laughs> women know what they're looking for in a man's assets, but then why we adopt certain practices and grooming practices to make ourselves look a certain way. That's quite an interesting question because men don't do nothing, do they? I mean, men, men will uh, spend a bit of money on some decent aftershave. They might get a haircut. They'll probably have a shave. They might buy a decent sh suit and shirt. They, they certainly wouldn't wear their filthy old work clothes out <laughs> if they wanted to pull in the bar. So men would make some effort, wouldn't they? Yeah. But at the same time, women also make an effort because they know how to focus men's attentions on the bits of their body that they think are their best assets and which they also perceive men to be interested in so there's going to be an, a range of different answers to this and I'm going to take a look and see what the historical record can tell us about perhaps when this first began to kick in fascinating question, thank you Tina Indeed, and you and Thomas and Aki are behind times, Chris, I see a lot of men at the salon doing their pedicures and their manicures, have you ever had a manicure? Does, doesn't Thomas do that? <laughs> no he doesn't <laughs> Thomas, disappoint me <laughs> 
<laughs> I can see Thomas sitting there having his nails done and then sort of, you know. Never. <laughs> you get a donut at some of these salons. Aki does, though, doesn't I mean, Aki does. Aki's always in that salon, yes. I can tell. Is it like, what, what do they call metrosexual? He's always late for the show because he's sort of, yeah, I'm in the, I was in the salon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Thelma in Lipala. Good morning. Oh, good morning. I'm so glad we've got a scientist on the program. They're so very, very clever. <laughs> I would like a, this um, question answered because I've also got a theory. Um, when in ancient times and how did they dis- discover that the world was flat and not round? Because I've got a theory, but I want well, you to hear his what's theory. Theory? What's your theory? I've got to hear his theory. <laughs> okay, Chris, let's hear your theory. Well, people, you know, surprises us because if you look back in history, people knew the earth was round, like a ball, a long time ago. The ancient Greeks knew all about it and they could, they could actually do experiments to show that the earth was rotating. They knew that because the stars rotated predictably in the sky. They singled out the fact that planets moved in a different way to stars and so they knew that there must be other bodies in the sky that also were going around the sun. And so there was a lot of insight a long time ago that the earth was not a flat surface. And the Greeks did, you know, there are various doc- documented examples of how they did experiments with sticks coming up out of the ground and looking at the length of the shadow and how the shadow moved around. And then they mathematically were able to explain this behaviour is because the Earth is in a giant orbit and it's a ball and it's turning and so on. All right, so Thelma, I hope I don't regret um, this. What's your, what's your theory? It's interesting because, you know, I've got Greek blood, but, and I agree with you, it does go back in ancient times. And I'm so glad that you guys proved the Bible right because in Isaiah 40, 22, uh-huh. he said he sits enthroned above the circle of the Earth. Uh-huh. How did he know the, circle, the earth was a, was a circle? And this God told him. Okay. All That's right. amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, Thelma. Thank you very much. Okay. Hey? Thank you. Thank you ah. for the call. Bye-bye. Let's go to John in Santon. Hi, John. Hi. Good morning, Chris. Uh, good morning, Rudy. Uh, Chris, can you hear me? We can hear you, John. Carry on. Thank you, John. Chris, I'd like to ask you, uh, nowadays the modern electric kettle, when you boil water, you actually hear the water boiling and it's quite noisy. Whereas previously you would put a kettle, fill it with water, and when it got to the boiling, the thermostat would switch it off. But I've tried in most electric kettles I buy, I can actually hear the water boiling. What causes that, please? Hello, John. What is going on in your kettle is there is a heating surface, an element, An electrical current is going through the element and owing to resistance, as the current goes through, it produces heat. The heat is conducted usually into a copper or some kind of similar surface coating around the element and this is in contact with the water so the element begins to supply energy to the water molecules. Water increases in temperature as you give it more energy up to the point where it reaches 100 degrees C And this is the point at which the molecules of water have enough energy to break the bonds between them, the intermolecular forces, and go from a liquid state to a gaseous state. Gases take up up to a thousand times more space, volume, than the corresponding liquid does. So if you have an element in a kettle which is giving a lot of energy to the water near the element, there will be particles of water around the element that will have enough energy to temporarily turn into a big bubble of gas, otherwise known as steam. Because this is much less dense than the water in the kettle, it will begin to rise up through the water in the kettle, 
And as it does so, it's going to give energy to the water around it and it's going to shrink because it's effectively losing energy and turning back into a liquid. This bubble will then collapse inside the water and it will make a thumping noise. And that's that rumbling that you get as a kettle boils. It's the bubbles coming off the elements, they pop into existence, they rise up a bit and then they collapse on themselves. Why does the note change between the boiling period and then the time when it actually starts to boil this is because more of those bubbles go from the element to the surface and escape a steam without collapsing inside the body of the liquid therefore you don't get that collapsing rumble so the note changes as the kettle actually begins to boil and it gets quieter i'm going to be paying more attention to the kettle boiling now uh cora in rondebosch cora in rondebosch good morning doctor yes cora go ahead with your question yeah Okay, we, we are running out of time, but Cora wanted to ask um, a, a question around reverse greying uh, of hair, that uh, the hair is turning dark from grey. Uh, what's behind that? Yeah, hi, Cora. This is a known phenomenon. The, the reason hair has the colour it does is that hair grows from a structure in the skin called a hair follicle. The hair follicle consists of a little ring of stem cells which produce the protein keratin, which is hair and it produces a filament of that keratin and the natural color of keratin which is a protein is white it's the same stuff your fingernails and toenails are made of and if you look at the color of the ends of your fingers and nails uh, your your and uh, feet you'll know that the keratin is a white color so the natural color of hair is white also in the hair follicle are cells called melanocytes the same cells that give your skin its pigment they add to the hair uh, that's growing the hair filament a little bit of melanin and this gives the hair its color as you age those melanocytes can clap out and stop working they just die off and they stop adding color to the hair in some people and for some reason the cells don't all disappear at once Mm -hmm. they can go through a few sort of jitters before they finally give up the ghost and so you can have some white hairs that then revert to color for a while or the stem the the follicle gets repopulated by some new melanin producing cells which work for a while before it then reverts back to the white color which is the natural color of the hair again chris have a lovely weekend we'll see you again next week and you, Reedy. Thanks, bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. See you soon. That's bye-bye. Naked Scientist Chris Smith. Thank you so much for your calls and your emails as well. We really enjoy your questions. What we'll do is make this section available or segment available for you as a podcast. What time, Thomas? Apparently, you get on a go slow on a Friday. Never. Never. No, I'm just teasing him. Never, Thomas. Uh, what time? Around half past one? Half past one. Half past one. Okay. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.